0: Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, and we are here today with the full crew and group episode because we've got a whole bunch of tech news to talk about this week. Joining me at the Boulder Group Groupetto here in Boulder, Colorado, is pro mechanic, Zach Edwards. Hi, Zach. Hello. We also have, from Sydney, Australia, Cycling Tips Senior Tech Editor, Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Hello. And, of course, last but certainly not least, we have Cycling Tips Editor-in-Chief, Kaylee Fretz. Hey, Kaylee. Hello. Zach and Kaylee. Yes. You guys had a little, had a little meetup in Durango not too long ago. How was uh how was a couple of days of mountain biking there? Yeah, it was you good. An adventure.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: Lots of mountain biking.
1: I was, uh, I was just looking at, I was on Strava and I was looking at the section of the Colorado trail that we rode Zach and I and Ruth. Uh, and then I zoomed out to what Lachlan Morton is currently doing. <laughs> and I should say this section of the Colorado trail took us hours. It took us like, what three, three and a half hours, four hours? Like if it was like a good for us, a three to four hour bike ride. Plus, we did a bunch of the end. It's a good bike ride, and it's like, it's like so small <laughs> compared to what Lachlan Morton, which I should say he's currently attempting the. Well, he's not. He's officially not attempting the fastest no time, uh, but he's yes basically though. going for the fast no t- fastest no fastest no time of the Colorado Trail, which runs from Denver to Durango or the other direction, if you want. Anyway. I thought we did this big massive ride over the weekend, and I was put in my place. <laughs> by I mean, we had what a lot Michael more. up
0: to? <laughs> had a lot more snack stops and enjoyed the view
1: well, more. Well,
3: let,
0: let let me True. ask both of you this question, um, Zach, Kaylee. Uh, how recently was it that either of you pulled a salary from being a pro bike racer? Mm. <laughs> Not. It's been pretty a pretty long time. To- pretty long time ago, right? Like like <laughs> pretty much your lifetimes. Yeah, something right? like that. <laughs> I think that's. I mean, like occasional
2: okay. prize money here and there, but yeah, <laughs> salary
0: <laughs> that's different, right? Tons right.
2: Tons of socks and mm. uh, yes, the occasional beer. Yeah. Yeah,
3: like we beer had, a, I would argue,
2: we had probably a better time, and we didn't have to hike any scree fields like Lachlan <laughs> definitely is doing. That's true. That
1: is, well, we did one little hiking section, but it was quite short, and then we were, re- yeah. were rewarded with an excellent downhill. Yeah, and he's probably doing it like barefoot,
0: or like you know, with some like straw bales strapped around his feet, or something like that. Like it's <laughs> something very Lockland. Yes, yes.
1: All right. Well, uh, anyway, yes, we had a great time, but uh, turns out our big bike ride was pretty small.
0: Hmm. Okay, Moral yeah, well, of the
1: story. <laughs> Dave, standard question for you. Let's talk about
0: your latest tool purchase. What you got?
3: Oh, uh, that will be something from the U.S. Uh, I did a little auto with uh, DRPD. They do kind of like high-end tool purveyors of. Of uh things that you get obsessive about and uh yeah, I, I'm replenishing some uh some PB Swiss drivers, which are my favorite, which I actually wore out the two millimeter one after quite a few years of use. Dave, so, yeah, at some point I'm go. gonna ask
0: you if you are like skimming money off the top or like you have some sort of side hustle here because like this is a lot of money that you were spending on duels.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Sure.
0: <laughs> 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 all
3: right well i like i like tools i like bikes they come together okay they fix things okay. so yeah
0: i mean they get you. It it, it it makes you who you are and we still we still like you the way you are so don't don't it's change
1: nefarious but, import but export to, business we're gonna yes. un, we're gonna
3: unearth it yeah, yeah my but, my but, gray import where i bring in one of one of each thing for personal use at a time right and right don't resell it it's very lucrative
0: very very mm-hmm. lucrative <laughs> mm-hmm. well dave, dave don't go hungry on us please okay uh well as i've said we've got a lot of news in the bike tech world to talk about today including new bikes from trek canyon and bmc uh and then we have however another big sign that the bike market is cooling off um so that'll be interesting to talk about and then of course we will wrap up today's nerd alert episode with another scintillating round of ask a mechanic all right let's get into the news Dave, let's start
3: with you and this new Trek Domane. Mm. What is the story here? The story is is that it seems like Trek realized that they made the Domane too heavy and too full of comfort-inducing features which didn't actually add a appreciable difference or benefit and that they've kind of rewound the clock on it if in the simplest sense. So in many ways I see this Domane as more like the original Domane Disc which was lighter and didn't have any comfort specific feature at the front it just had the iso speed at the seat tube uh, a non-adjustable one and it was designed as a endurance road bike for the masses uh and it seems like treks done just that They're, they're they're starting they're reminding people that this actually is a road bike it's not a light gravel bike although it can be used for that uh and that it really is designed to be sold as a road bike um yeah, and they've saved about 300 grams off SL or SLR, respectively, and that's probably the the main story there.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a couple of really interesting tidbits here. So mm. the max tire clearance is uh, 700 by 38, which definitely is not really straying Huge. into proper gravel bike uh, territory. Uh, a couple it's of not, really, but how they measure that is very interesting. Yeah, because Trek is pretty conservative, so you obviously can Super go a little yep. bigger on that one. Yeah. Uh, So they're
3: basically, their, their tire clearance is based on the biggest 38 millimeter they could find on the market. So not a measured 38. Uh, so let's just say it's actually a 39 millimeter tire and then they allow six millimeters gap in all areas. So yeah, if you do the math, that's, that's still, that's realistically, that's a 40 mil tire with plenty of clearance left. Right.
0: Right. A couple really cool, exciting things that are actually on this thing. Uh, Trek got rid of their seat mast, like that's kind of a big deal because mm-hmm. they've been running seat masts since yeah. like what is it the i don't I don't remember what three or four midones ago in two thousand and seven or something now. it's been a long, long time, yeah, so that's gone. um mm-hmm. replaced with a a telescoping seat post with a wedge type clamp that's hidden in the frame, and like it's certainly a lot going to be a lot easier for packing now um and then there's also no more press fit bottom bracket which is not entirely
3: surprising because that's the way that they've been going on other bikes right yep yep so yeah the demane the new demane spelled the end for any press fit bottom bracket in their entire lineup do we get to take credit for this i think we can pat ourselves on the back knowing (laughs) knowing that we didn't have any sway in the product development of this bike
1: Uh, someone a friend sent me a text last night with a a picture of a t-shirt that just said we solved cycling Uh, and I feel like in many ways we have (laughs) can we can we
0: just have we can have a a we solved cycling t-shirt with like like a almost like a to-do list checklist on the back and we can have on there like press fit bottom bracket and what hidden cable routing um, UCI rules, both some, yeah, maybe some UCI rules. Uh, what else would be on there? This mm. is a classic Kaylee tangent, by the way.
3: I don't, I don't know about you, Zach, but I don't actually want to take credit for 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 this move to Trek's T47 because the next time a mechanic like strips the, the tool fitment, <laughs> trying to remove the bottom bracket, they're gonna yes. swear our names. Correct. Right. This is true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. So
3: this one's not on us. That
0: that's yeah. that's fine as well. Dave, uh, there's not actually just one Domani though, right? There's three, if I'm
3: understanding you correctly, right? Or sort there, of like almost like there's two, really? No, there's a, actually four if you count the Domani AL, which is their entry level best selling road bike. Um, that that doesn't change. That that carries on unchanged from when we last reviewed it. Uh, but yeah, there's the SL, which is kind of like the affordable carbon. It's 500 series OCLV carbon. Uh, they've got uh, the SLR, which is their premium 800 series oclv which is a new high-end layup for the domano they've never gone quite that high modulus on the domano uh and the price is also up there uh and then they've got the rsl the race shop limited which is kind of something they've done in the past back when like fabian cancellara was riding around on trek bikes across cobbles uh and yeah basically that's a pro edition so it's it's pro geometry uh and yeah some other tweaks they've they got rid of like the storage hatch and it can fit bigger chain rings at the cost of the tire clearance. And even quicker steering on that bike, right?
0: Because Super quick. <laughs> that, it is one thing that's interesting about this Domani. It's it's an endurance road bike. Yeah, And yes, the SL and the SLR have, I think, what, what do they call it? Like the, their H2 fit, is that right? Yeah, they're just calling it, an it endurance fit. Okay, well, it's, it's got a taller H2 stack. Branding. Yeah. It's a taller yeah. stack. Um, yeah, whereas the RSL is... Uh, what do they call like pro racer h1.5 something like that it's a lower stack front yeah. for that yeah um but what's really interesting is that all of these bikes have really quick steering geometry
3: mm-hmm. yeah they do and uh yeah if you th- like the the domano the regular sl and slr the consumer versions there are uh, they're, they're definitely quick they're quicker than say like a bmc team machine for example if you look at the trail figures uh, but where it gets really interesting is that the the pro version is one of the, has one of the shortest trail figures that I've seen in recent memory. It's like fifty one millimeters, which is um, in, so you can change line on the cobbles really quickly. Duh. Yeah,
1: I, I don't. <laughs> what understand was the last that. one? Because I I rode the last one and I cannot remember what the number was, but I remember it being insanely insanely
3: twitchy. It should have been about 57, 58. 59 even yeah um which is what the new one is at as well um but yeah it's it's weird like you look at the fork offset they put a 53 millimeter fork offset on the pro version um which would make for that really really quick um trail figure but uh it's strange because they make a 48 millimeter fork offset so i don't know why they've made that decision i can only assume toe clearance
0: i mean that bike i would say if anyone Uh, but that bike has always been sort of like their dedicated real like cobbles racing bike Mm -hmm. um it's obviously just like a homologation special sort of thing like if they're selling it purely just so they can supply their race team with this thing Mm -hmm. um and i guess they want that quick of a steering and um but historically for a lot of roubaix bikes they have all often run forks with more rake to go along with a little bit of a longer rear end which uh, kind of endurance road bikes are auto- automatically have these days anyway but um, it's sort of, they sort of offset that quicker steering with a longer wheelbase and a long longer front center um, so they kind of get a little bit of that stability but you still get the ability to kind of like dart around as you need to so it's, it's a really interesting geometry it's um, super
3: interesting yeah because the, the one, head angle is a lot steeper than the consumer version
0: yeah, and one thing that I yeah. noticed too is historically that in uh, Domani RSL, um, I mean, typically Cobble's racers are not really shorter. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, Trek had only offered the previous generation Domani RSL in a 54 centimeter, but now it's down to a 52, Women's which fits yeah. me. Well, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, but now like it, it's a whole different story because you get a whole different, I guess, height Bracket of people that are racing on the cobbles now, which is awesome.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of the last two races on the women's side.
0: So small bike geo works. Yeah. Woohoo. I'm, I'm pretty happy about it because it fits me. I haven't ridden it yet. But anyway, I do, yeah. have a, uh, I do have an SLR here, though, that I have not had a chance to ride just yet. So we'll have a full report on that pretty soon. So we'll see. But mm-hmm. anyway, I, I do like where Trek is going with this overall, just kind of like the increased simplicity and ditching the seat pad and the press fit and stuff. I think endurance road bikes will and gravel bikes to that degree will kind of simplify as
2: well. Like I hope so. Because, and you look at historically at endurance red bikes, the biggest tires like people were running were 28s or something at the max. And so they're like, okay, how can we build more comfort in because we've maximized the geometry and all of this from a position standpoint. But they've built comfort in with all these like, I don't know, suspension things that are kind of gimmicky, but kind of work on bikes. And now we have like this bike can fit 38s. So with a 38, the bike rides way smoother. And you can get rid of the suspension stuff that isn't really suspension that doesn't really do anything other than add weight. Yeah. So I think, I think simplifying the bike is fantastic and letting the tires do the job that they're supposed to do.
1: The, the 2017 RSL that I was thinking of mm-hmm. also had a trail figure of 51. Okay.
3: All right. And so, so yeah,
1: which, which, it's which no worse. yeah, it's no worse than it was before. Um, I liked that bike a lot. When I, when I wrote it, uh, it was this sort of weird combination of, if I remember correctly, and I am just remembering here, like slightly longer stays and stuff. And then, uh, and then this super twitchy handling, which is something that we've seen variations on in the gravel world. I think, um, yeah, I loved it. Plus I loved the fact that it didn't have a head tube that was about 75 miles long, which (laughs) at the time, uh, was a difficult thing with some Trek bikes. Uh, yeah yeah i I mean i i I rode that thing for four or five months probably and really really dug it so if you're into like crazy twitchy road bikes uh and and really racy geometry and handling i shouldn't say geometry just handling (laughs) then it is worth worth chasing one of these things down and maybe trying to get a a ride in
3: i I don't want to take us off on too much of a tangent about this bike but um that two thoughts on my mind one is i used to always recommend the domano to to anyone that needed a road bike that was comfortable and a bit more upright uh to the point that uh my own father rides a domano because i can consider that to be the best bike on the market at, at some point point. and then they went to the the seat tube based iso speed and they added the front iso speed and it became a very heavy bike and i just flat out stopped recommending the bike entirely um, so I'm I'm quite happy to see that it's where the bike has come back around to. That said, price list is quite terrifying on this thing. I I don't it's know if you've really looked expensive. at it. Eight thousand dollars, I think it was for US. I'd have to, let me just double check that. But oh, uh, SLR with 105 DI2 is eight thousand dollars US. What yes. for a 105 bike? <laughs> for a 105 <laughs> bike, if you want the rival bike. Rival AXIS, it's more. It's $8,400. Oh, dear God. What is outrageous. happening? Like, yeah, you're getting a nice carbon wheel with that bike. It's like everything else is great. You're getting a very high-end frame, which Trek would probably say is an S-Works quality frame. Uh, but yeah, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money.
0: For a bike with 105. That's ridiculous. Way too much. But it's 105 mm-hmm. Di2, so you get the whole still,
2: so, like, I would rather have Ultegra Mechanical... For two thousand less dollars,
0: and it's going to be lighter and shift just as well. Yeah, but Zach, yeah. hasn't anyone told you that this this is a nod to the weekly cycling the spot, is, However, Zach, hasn't anyone told you that di two is essential? It is essential,
2: but like it Once should not, it, it should not make the, the price point of bicycles like unattainable for ninety five percent of cyclists out there.
3: Yeah,
1: I just yeah. googled Honda motorcycles. Oh no. <laughs> I can get a CB500X for $7,199.
3: But it does not have electronic shifting. Did you Google Honda motorcycles or did you go to the pink bike comment section for that answer? (laughs) (sighs) <sighs> oh, man. So, yeah. I I, I,
1: I'm, I'm, is this is this like inflation? Is this like- uh, I, It can't what, be inflation. Because, I mean, What on earth, an eighty eight dollars bike with 105? Are you kidding me? I mean, a 105 me?
2: bike used to be like
1: $2,000 at the max. Well, granted, I mean, I guess,
0: I, I think we need to make sure that we are yeah. distinguishing between 105 it's mechanical
2: not, and 105 Di2. But 105 yeah, mechanical so isn't it, a thing anymore. This is the same level of group set.
0: It's it's the same name, but it's realistically realistically price wise, it's more like it's closer to Altegra mechanical. But Zach, still, I I do see your point. It is yeah, it is a massive massive uh,
3: inflation. Like if in you price. can't
0: afford an eight thousand dollar bike, like this is very off topic
2: from the Demani in particular. Like this is bike like industry wide. But like if you can't afford a one hundred five bike that's eight thousand dollars, you are riding like there's very little in between, right? Like there's this or there's the eighteen hundred dollar aluminum bike with mechanical <laughs> shifting and maybe mechanical disc brakes that well, don't no, really like
3: work. That's, that's the high-end frame that's $8,000. I mean, you, yeah, you still, can get onto the Domano platform from $3,500 for the carbon, fr- like entry-level carbon frame, 105 mechanical alloy wheels. That's still a lot of money for what, that, what you're getting there. But yeah, and that's a
2: 25-pound uh, road bike.
3: Like, uh, just, the bike 20, industry is yeah. just wild yeah, yeah, right it's probably, yeah. now. It's yeah. probably closer to 20,
0: but still. Yeah, 20 pounds. It's, it's yeah. a lot of money. It's an it's awful a lot of money.
3: Yeah. Well, Sorry for that tangent.
0: I guess we will see how good this bike is. Uh it had better be really really good considering how much mm. it costs because I have mm. not looked up the retail price of the one that just showed up at uh, at our office not too long ago. But I'm sure it's a lot because oh, I can tell you SLR, what, what parts
3: it, it, what puts does it have?
0: Uh it's an SLR 7 eTap, I think. It's got a it's I think it has red eTap on it. Wait, that so that shouldn't be a 7. That might be that might be a 9 eTap. The right? 9
3: that uh, the top end, so the most expensive model in the range is is the ready tap version and it comes with a power meter. Uh thirteen thousand two hundred US.
1: Okay, yes. Then this was 13200 dollars mm, Yeah. I, I was just I was just Googling cheap cars to make uh <laughs> oh dear God. An, an equally sort of lazy point about car prices, except that car prices are still insane. And so uh for that for that price, you could get a 2009 Chevrolet Aveo with 54,000 miles on it. And frankly, I would take the track. Yeah, but... I (laughs) I was just going to say, I think I'd rather have (laughs) the bike. Kelly, that's got
3: that's got wired shifting. It's not... (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) Okay.
1: Yeah, I would take I would take the pedal bike over that. (laughs) Well, moving
0: on to, I guess, sort of the seemingly opposite end of the pricing spectrum. Uh, We also have a new Ultimate now from Canyon. It comes with that Big consumer direct brand out of Germany. So Canyon says it has focused on the, quote, the, purpose, uh, the perfect balance, unquote, for this fifth generation model. It's got a more aerodynamic shape than it used to be. Uh, it supposedly saves five five watts uh, with a rider on board at 45k an hour. Uh, you've got more front triangle stiffness. The ride quality is supposedly better. Um, interestingly, though, the bike is now... No lighter than the old one. And in fact, it's actually heavier in a lot of cases. Uh, So Canyons were actually pretty open to me that the previous top-end CFR version, they said, was actually a little too soft, they thought. And they uh, also added 30 grams of material across the board to improve impact durability, which they said... Well, actually, they didn't say explicitly, but they definitely implied that that may have been a weakness on the previous generation Ultimate. Uh, Tire clearance has also gone up to 700 by 32 officially. Canyon's been pretty historically conservative on that, kind of like the Domani that we were just talking about. So uh, much like the the Domani, we've got three different frame versions on tap here. We've got the entry-level SL, the mid-range SLX, and then the top-end CFR, all exclusively in carbon fiber. There is no aluminum Ultimate that was announced. Uh, And then 11 models in total, also a frame-only option for the CFR. Uh, Canyon is still, however, sticking with its PF86 press fit bottom bracket shell we still. Well, and now, uh, on most of the models, Canyon has actually brought over that CP0018 integrated cockpit that they used on the air road. Uh, that was more than a little bit of prop, more than a little problematic at launch. Uh, cue Matthew Vanderpool video clips here. Um, supposedly that's, all supposedly that's been all fixed. So hopefully that's been the case because that's, it's on most of the bikes, um, that bike is now available in limited quantities now, although if you're able to get your hands on one, as usual with Canyon, you're going to save a pretty big chunk of cash compared to most bikes that you'll see comparably spec from mainstream brands. Um, I actually just got back from riding this thing for a couple of days. I have a long-term test bike that just showed up. Um, it, it's it's a pretty good bike, and certainly pricing-wise, it looks really interesting. Uh, so Dave, you were talking about the one that I had, the Domani that I had being what, like 13.2 or something US. The top end ultimate CFR with Dura Ace 12 speed DI2, uh, DT Swiss uh, PRC 1100 Moncha Sorel climbing carbon clinchers and Sally Italia C59 saddle, uh, Dura Ace power meter. That whole thing comes in at 6.3 kilos, I think. And I believe, if I remember remember correctly, I believe the price was like 11,000 US.
3: That's more like it. Seems like the better deal. How so? They're, obviously, they're different business models. One's Very Consumer so. Direct, one Very is not. Very much so. But although Trek is on their, on their way to being kind of Consumer <laughs> Direct, are. the way they're buying up every retail <laughs> store. But um, yeah, that's a big difference.
0: I, it, it's, it's, when you're looking at that end of the pricing spectrum, like it's... I mean, granted, if someone's buying a eleven, twelve, thirteen thousand dollar bike, like they clearly have a decent amount of money to to throw around. Mm-hmm. But I would say that there is certainly still a contingent of people, and probably a decent sized contingent of people who like like it's not just a, a casual buy yep. to spend that much money on a bike. No, and being able to save a couple of thousand dollars,
3: yep. is a pretty big deal. It's a huge deal. Yeah, absolutely. So. It's, uh, what can, what's, what's the main standout feature for you on this new bike? Like what has changed compared to the previous version? Cause that previous version stood for what, five years? Like Canyon, something like that. Well, really holds, you know, Canyon doesn't recycle their models o- overly quickly. Like they, they really design something pretty progressively and then keep it.
0: So right, what's, right. what's
3: groundbreaking about this one?
0: Uh, you know, honestly, I can't say how it really compares too much to the fourth generation ultimate cause that's a bike I actually never rode. Um, but having ridden earlier generations of the ultimate, I mean, for me, I like that it does have that dose of aero, but doesn't take away from it just being a good feeling bike. Um, and granted, uh, like I said, the only one I've ridden so far is that top end CFR DI2 model. Um, so it is super light and it, it, it's super, it's actually really fun to climb on. It has a very stiff front end, which is one of the things that Canyon said they improved the most on the CFR version. Um, the ride is a little – it does seem a little brittle to me, and I don't mean that in terms of durability, but I just mean it, it, it's it, it's a little bit – it's not quite as comfortable as I was hoping it would be, but part of that may also be the fact that they use, that they run a different seat post on the CFR. Um, the seat posts are often where you get the most certainly rear-end comfort on a bike, and on the CFR versions, they run in, uh, an extra stiff carbon fiber – um that drops the C post weight actually quite a lot. Like the normal C post on the SL and SLX is, I think it's 110 grams, and the one on the CFR is 70 grams, which in terms of percentage Whoa. is a massive drop. Um, but it's nowhere near as as flexible. Um, so um in addition to that CFR DI2 model that I rode, um, that I rode in Europe at the at the launch event, I actually also had Canyon send to me the least expensive ultimate model that they have which comes with mechanical shifting they have two they have two models with mechanical shifting one with 105 and one with Altegra. um it's partially external cable riding up front has to use a different uh has to use a different cockpit setup up front um and i can't remember the retail price on that you'll have to check uh check the website for that but it is way 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 less expensive it's like barely i think a quarter of the cost something like that it's maybe like three grand or so um and uh, I'm definitely planning on doing some seat post swapping to see how much how much more comfort you can get from that. Uh, I also really want to check out some different wheels and tires because my suspicion is that so that bike is, like I said, six point three kilos or so in stock form without pedals or accessories, if I were to put on the seat post from the SL, which is supposed to be more comfortable, and if I were to put on some different wheels on there, uh, and the ones I'm thinking the ones I have in mind are, those NV 4.5 ARs um, with, some, with some pretty big tires on there. So I'm thinking like a 31 mil measured width, something like that. So that bike would then be more aero, have more tire. It would be heavier, but it would probably still be like, I don't know, with pedals and everything, like it would maybe still not be quite UCI legal. It'd be really close. And I think that'd be a killer bike.
3: Mm. Are you looking to compare the entry level with the most expensive as well? I am. As a matter of fact, that is, that is the goal here. That's very exciting. Yeah. I've, I, I've got a Canyon, the new Endurance CF here, which they launched a few months ago. So it's like their entry level carbon to their endurance bike with, with 105 mechanical. I've been riding that the, the last month or last few months. Um, great bike. Very impressive. 105 mechanical is
0: great stuff.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Like uh-huh. actually,
0: at, at, at field test, I think you and I certainly were reminded of how good 105 mechanical is on that light speed that we tested. Like, it's oh, yeah. great.
3: Especially when the cables are external.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, speaking of field tests, in case any of you have been watching the Cycling Tips YouTube channel and have been noticing a, a a lull in field test content, I uh, just want to mention that we had a little bit of a video editing snafu, so we have a basically a week delay in the last couple bits of content from field tests. So never fear, it is not it has not abruptly ended. Uh, we have two more two more entries coming in uh, probably next week. I hope so. Fingers crossed that all gets sorted out. Anyway, but uh, yeah, this canyon looks pretty cool. Looks pretty interesting. The prices look really great. Uh, the bike itself, I think, is quite nice looking. I definitely have my reservations about that that CP eighteen cockpit from the Aero that they're using, and not and not even just in terms of reliability concerns. It's just not necessarily a fan of having to run everything through the stem and bars like it has an adjustable width which is nice but if you need it if you need to swap a stem length good luck and it's also very
2: proprietary like super most most other bikes with integrated cables and everything you can you can use a different brand's stem or handlebar like maybe not perfectly but you can actually use it if you need to change stem length and say the canyon one's not available you can get x company to replace Mm. that but this is like very very proprietary with how it works and
0: most people yeah. aren't gonna change yeah. anything out probably. Totally different steer tube. The, the way the the way the stem attaches and clamps on there, it's completely unique to that bike. Yeah, well, I guess the ultimate and the air road. Um, so much so that um I mentioned that you can get the ultimate CFR as a frame only. However, that frame kit is not only a frame fork headset, cockpit, and seat post, but Canyon is also pre-installing and running Dura Ace disc brake calipers and running the hoses out through the steer tube and everything. Um, because apparently they don't want you to do it. So uh-huh. how do you service your headset bearings? Do you have to send your bike back to Canyon if you're not allowed to run brake hoses? Have I mentioned how light that bike is?
3: <laughs> um it comes mm-hmm. in a really cool shade of silver. Yeah. I'm I'm waiting for someone to buy that frame kit and put um shram shram levers onto the Oh, oh. I just feel like
2: that's such it's a so telling thing. Th- like
1: internal, it is very telling
2: fully internal cables have their pluses and minuses, and they're here to stay. Mm-hmm. Like, whatever. We can ramble about them. But, like, it's very telling with how overcomplicated your setup is if the company is selling a frame set with pre-routed brake hoses because they feel like it's such a
3: pain to do that they're not going to let you do it yourself. Like, yeah. No,
2: it that is. That's pretty yeah, telling. That's
3: problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I find it funny that Canyon consi- consistently keeps making the cockpit like the most polarizing part, like the most polarizing decision of their bikes. You've got like the grail, like the, the, the hover, the double decker bar, and you've got <laughs> yes. all these other bikes God. in their lineup where it's like the, yeah, the deciding factor is whether you like their handlebar or not. It's, it's just a, uh, it's a theme. I saw
1: a couple of grails in, in the wild recently with the really? handlebar.
3: They're yeah. out there. They're how out many, how many handlebar bags were they using? Four each. Four yeah.
1: each.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I've worked on a number of them and they're not
2: fun to wrap the bars.
1: I use twice of, as much tape. <laughs> yeah, there's a
2: lot of squiggles that you have to do to get a it. A lot of, of squiggles. A
1: lot of stretching. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. I hate it. Remember when forks were just forks and you can like put a fork on this bike or put a fork on that bike and then maybe put the, the brakes on that you want. And I'm I'm sorry. I, I I think I'm just in a very bad mood this afternoon. Mm. Not helped by the, the $8,000 105 bike and certainly not helped by whatever the heck is going on with the steer tube in this canyon. I'm just grumpy well, about
2: it. I mean, I would, if you've if you've not seen this, I would picture in your head like a carbon fiber version of an old quill stem. Like that's kind of how this works.
0: It is. It's very similar. Yeah. I mean you, you definitely have uh, tubes that uh, sort of slide and like like
2: one. Like there's there's one not a sear tube another. above the of above the frame that you can just clamp a stem onto.
1: Like, Why, it's, not? It's, it's like a Why little don't they stub, just put a sear tube above the frame that you can clamp a stem onto? Because that would be heavier, Kaylee.
0: I don't know that it would be.
1: I don't think. (laughs) I don't. Well, maybe. I mean, but I think it has somewhere less annoying to save weight. That's what uh, I
0: say. Well, I mean, another thing. Actually, with the weight thing, Canyon did also say with moving to moving to the internal routing, uh, they did say that uh, running fully internal routing is heavier than a partially external setup. So they're doing it more for like cleanliness and arrow. It saves five watts
2: at forty-five kilometers an hour.
0: It, mm-hmm. But it, it, the big thing is, unfortunately, mm. as much as we as much as we rant against the whole like fully internal cable routing thing, that's unfortunately seems to be what people it, I guess want or expect. Like it, it's, it's
2: here to say whether we like it or not. But I think that the difference is there are good ways of doing it and there are bad ways of doing it, and this seems like a bad way in terms of user friendliness and ease of service. And everything. like this new track that we were talking about, they change the cable routing on it. You can change the stem. Length without having to undo all the brake hoses. You and can change the bar. You can change the bar. Like yeah. it's
3: very user-friendly. And yeah. this is not that. Yeah. Yeah. But but Zach, it saves it lets your Tesla go that much further on the single charge <laughs> when it's <laughs> on top attached via sea suckers. <laughs> yes. And that's <laughs> exactly. really what these these <laughs> s- this is what are it's all about. about. <laughs> uh, you know, I I
0: feel like we we are often I'm not gonna say we're often, but we have been accused in the past of being like Super grumpy, curmudgeon-y bike tech people. Yeah, uh, because we are. are. <laughs> I mean, in, in a sense. That's I mean, but mainly. yes, I mean, i I I think I'm. I think we're all going to be pretty proud to own that title, mainly because while, like, yes, we get, we get we get sort of labeled at that, but at the same time, we, there's a whole other contingent of people who say that we're just sort of like you know, just marketing megaphones for bike companies, just saying how everything is great, and like we're we're definitely not doing that, especially here because we have been pounding this drum for a long time, talking about how, yes, I mean, bikes with fully internal cable routing do look cleaner and they do have, uh, I'm not gonna say significantly, but measurably less aerodynamic drag than if you have housings and hoses kind of flapping around back there or up there. But for the majority of people, it doesn't matter. And I would say that the headaches in maintenance and sizing and that sort of thing, far, far outweigh any sort of benefit that you get from from whatever slightly improved aerodynamics and cleanliness yeah. that you get. Yeah, but they look
3: cool. But, yeah, yeah, fine. I, mean, they I look think cool. the but difference yeah, is, like,
1: the looks. Like,
2: I have for sure have been called grumpy. I mean, yeah. whatever. I know, right? Weird. But, like, <laughs> I love new stuff. New stuff is awesome. Like, that's what I, I do in my business and that's, like, I work on all of the newest, latest, greatest, like, and it's all super cool and exciting. What I don't like is, like, new whiz bang for new whiz sake. Like it's not solving a problem or it's not making the bike actually more functional or more whatever. Like it's just a feature to put in the marketing that comes with the new bike. Like it's not mm-hmm. anything that actually makes the rider user experience better. And that's what I like,
0: what I don't like and what I get Agreed. grumpy about. So I have a homework assi- assignment for everyone here. Um, so for the four of us, uh, this was actually brought up in, I can't remember if it was in a Slack conversation or on the forum or I can't remember, um, but uh, some Slacking Tips reader uh, posed the question to us, given all the complaints that we have about uh, internal cable routing, what sort of internal cable routing setups do we like and how would we design one? Easy. So, <laughs> just so don't, don't, ask, don't, don't all chime in at once. I don't want to hear it right now, but I just want you to think about it and we'll talk about it in the next group show. So, mm. just something to think about.
3: Um speaking of fully integrated uh cable routing, should we talk about the new BMC gravel bike? I was just
0: going to say, let's move on to the new BMC. Dave, what are we looking at here? Uh BMC's
3: entry into the gravel racing category. Uh so yeah, quote court racing. Uh, racing. Uh so yeah, they've previously had the urs which is sort of like an adventure mountain bikey gravel bike. Um this is their first sort of like almost road going gravel bike. Uh and yeah, it's the the chaos? Chaos? How how would you say it, James? Chaos? Caius. Caius. Okay. Um, yeah, it's it's basically it's if you can imagine in your head the BMC T machine road bike, but with 40 millimeter tires. And that is the chaos. Caius.
2: I think this is first. fantastic though. Like this is the gravel bike, whether you're racing or not, that most people need.
3: Like, I think it's a really aren't. cool bike. It's got some interesting decisions on it, which some would say groundbreaking. Others would say why, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's. I think it does. It looks really cool. I'm really excited to to ride one. There is one apparently being sent my way soon. Um, yes, uh, it looks awesome. I'm I'm going to say that. Uh, and yeah, it's it's certainly an interesting bike. Clearance for 44 millimeter tires, so it's a little bit more than what their own adventure gravel bike offers. Uh, you can run a two by or a one by on it. Nothing too funky on it in terms of like the bottom bracket or anything like that, although that remains as a press fit. But when you get to the front end of the bike, it's um the top end model actually has a one-piece handlebar and stem, much like their team machine. Uh but where it gets weird is that all sizes of that top end model have a bar that is 36 centimeters wide at the tops. At the, at the hoods. Yep. At the hoods. Wait, what? Yep. yep. And then it flares to a 42. As someone who's tall
2: and rides large size bikes, I hate how handlebar sizing is. Because every if I were to buy a stock 58 bike, it's going to come with 110 mil stem and like 46 mil bars, and that is just absolutely horrendous. Like, I cannot ride that. So (laughs) I think I I can see both sides of it. I think there should be some sizing difference. Like, I don't Mm. think it should just be this assumption of one size fits all, which I think that's kind of terrible. I think that if you're going to sell a bike with a one-piece cockpit you should have the option of what length stem and what width bars you choose. I know that's not realistic
3: in terms of a yeah, supply chain the, thing. They're allowing stem length choice, but not bar width choice. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is did, fair. Did,
1: yeah. did, did, did you say 36?
3: 36. 36. Yes. So you heard, you correctly, oh, you heard that correctly. Be like rimco. on the hoods on a gravel bike. That, that mm-hmm. is obviously a decision based on, uh, your, you know, narrowing your frontal profile and being a racing bike. They've, they've, basically said this is all about optimizing for speed which sure I, it will do that but I, I don't know i don't know how i would go with holding on to i would it. yeah i would
2: rather a 36 mil bar with the hoods straight rather than someone riding a 42 with them angled in at 45 degrees
3: true <laughs> Apparently, Apparently from people, people are that standpoint? on the gravel
2: oh so many people you go to really? any gravel race, and it's just like everyone has their handlebars turned in or their hoods turned in, and it oh, looks just absolutely horrendous.
1: Mm. I, I'm not opposed to narrow bars. I, I used to race on 38s and 40s when I was racing road. Yeah, did I? Um, 36 is really narrow.
3: 36 uh, is very and, narrow,
1: and, and I feel like there's 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 often kind of a misunderstanding around. Or maybe just different styles, or around like how, like where your hands are when you're when you're on rough stuff. Yeah, on People think you're bike. on the tops. Yeah, you- like I'm on the hoods because I, the drops are really low, and if I'm mm-hmm. on the drops, I, I'm going to like endo myself at some point because I have so much weight over weight over the front end. And if I'm going down something steep or whatever, and granted, if this is a quote unquote gravel race bike, maybe they're just thinking like unbound gravel where there's yes, none yes, exactly. Of that. That's basically but, what they're going for here. But, but but even so, like, I want to be able to control the bike from the tops. And well, I don't he, really get, I don't really, like, I would almost prefer the opposite. I want reverse flare bars, right? Like, <laughs> well, I, I was gonna say,
3: like, like let me, <laughs> let me <laughs> put, it,
1: let's put it this way, okay? So, trying to visualize
3: a, a that.
0: Lot of, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, I would think a lot of people also ride mountain bikes, and a lot of people also probably have dropper posts. There is a reason why there are dropper posts. And not dropper handlebars because on technical <laughs> terrain, when you're going downhill, you don't necessarily want the front your your, your weight bearing front end over there. You don't you don't necessarily want your hands lower. You don't necessarily no. want to bring your 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 contact point lower up front on a really sketchy section. So yes, I hear you, Kaylee. It's
3: always it's always, that's that's always struck me yeah. as a lot. We we also don't have dropper handlebars because we still keep having rigid handlebar recalls so (laughs) uh, (laughs) yeah i just don't get it i i i
1: the idea of like having more control when you're in the drops is backwards to me
2: but i think Uh, this is like like, look at it from a gravel racing standpoint you're not going and doing stupid single track on your gravel bike like you're on a dirt road like maybe not unbound like that's its own weird thing but like i was at steamboat a couple weeks ago and it's like beautiful dirt roads and everything but you're like Kind of slogging it along at a high pace, like you kind of want to get arrow, which I think then that makes sense. But I also like the people that are buying this bike aren't at the front of a
1: pro bike race. Well, yeah, that's the thing is, are they are they going to do this on their road bikes? Because like seems it, so. Y- I would I mean, guess that they would. Yeah, it seems it
0: seems pretty clear that they're going to. I think handlebar sizing aside, I think it's a great bike though. Like it, from yeah from I, appearances, it I, seems. I like the idea of it, but one thing that I wanted to bring up is. So BMC is categorizing this as a gravel race bike. They're very specific that's for gravel racing. Um, and this is their interpretation of gravel racing, so lightweight, a little bit of aerodynamics, um, you know, clearance for bigger tires because courses are you know they, they're all over the place, whatever. Um, it also has shorter chain stays than the the unrestricted model that they have right now. But what I'm curious about is, for a lot of people. I mean, people's needs for you know what they need to, to go fast on gravel is is going to vary a lot depending on the terrain, right? So what is it that makes a gravel bike fast? Because it's not always going to be light and aero, right? I think not even it's like, I wouldn't look at it as a
2: gravel race bike. I guess that's how they're marketing it. But I would well, think- it's very that, much how they're marketing it. But this is a gravel bike what 95% of people should be on. Like most people that go on a gravel bike- the riding that they're doing is essentially road riding, but on rougher roads. So they want a road bike with bigger tires. And that's what this is. This isn't a bike that has suspension at the stem or like clearance for 650 B by 2.2 mountain bike tires. Like it's just a road bike with bigger tire clearance. And I think that's what, what most people need when they're getting a gravel bike. Like most people aren't going on bikepacking adventures or riding single track on it or whatever. Like Kaylee and I were actually talking about this this weekend and it's kind of the same thing in mountain biking is like so many people are overbiked and they're riding these like six inch travel enduro bikes tried XC trails. And I think that's kind of how like the industry has kind of been pushing all these gravel bikes lately is this like, we're going to make this have the biggest tire clearance and the most slack and the longest and the widest flared bars and like all of these things to make it this adventure mobile. But like most people don't need That's how I see it. Like this is a road bike with bigger tire clearance Huge majority of people don't need
1: that. I I think it is. Yeah, it's most obvious in the mountain bike world for sure, right? Where, yeah, like we go out and, granted, where we were riding over the weekend, it's pretty rough. It's pretty high. You know, I I, I, if you wanted to ride a trail bike up there, it's it's probably on paper a pretty damn good place for it. But we were both on cross country bikes, (laughs) and I ride a cross country bike basically all the time around here, and I see people on these massive, heavy bikes that I'm like. why you just go slower everywhere, like the
2: massive heavy bike has a place, but most people aren't don't live next to trails like that
1: yeah it's it they only get fun when you go really fast down really rough trails, so if you do that great have fun i I also have a big bike that I really enjoy when I want to go do that, but the same thing runs across gravel. It, it's in skiing even like, like the equivalent in skiing is basically everyone running powder skis to, to go ski groomers all the time, right? Like, because everyone just wants a, uh, this is going to make no sense to our cycling audience. Everyone wants like a one oh one oh eight one ten one twelve 108, 110, 112 underfoot to go ski groomers. It makes no sense whatsoever, right? That tangent aside, I think it's just like, it, it's indicative of this sort of the reason I bring up the skiing. You know, I feel like it's indicative of this sort of like outdoor industry, uh, obsession, with like the bigger and the burlier, you know, and that's that's how they sell the things and that's and, and and realistically, most users are not not only are they not pushing it far enough to need that stuff, but it's actually making their experience worse by having it right but I would argue that it's not even just in
0: the outdoor markets uh overall it's in everything really because people pe- people i would say Make their buying purchases based on what they feel like they might need someday or might aspire to, not necessarily what they actually need on a day-to-day basis. Like, you know, I I, I always bring up automotive uh, analogies. Like, look at what people buy for trucks. Like, realistically, most people who buy a truck would be totally good with like a, a Ford Maverick, right, or something like a small compact pickup truck. But you have people buying like F three fifty lifted super duties and stuff and like like for what? Like if like a lot of those people never tow anything. They never go off-road for anything. They're never they're never doing anything except going to like the right. grocery store. But it's 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 this kind of like image. It's a this idea that they're sort of buying possibilities or options, that yeah. sort of thing. And, so and I, I guess just, yeah. And like I, I can sort of see how that might apply to gravel bikes, um, because a lot of the imagery it does focus around sort of like the whole underbiking thing. Um, But yeah, Zach, like you said, the reality is, and I find it very funny that, you know, we're seemingly coming around full circle with a lot of these gravel race bikes that they're essentially just sort of like slightly modified cross bikes. Yeah, Um, But we're just coming back to this idea that ultimately what works best for a lot of people is essentially just a road bike with a big tire. Just something simple, relatively light, easy to work on, um, simple to handle and understand just but with a lot big tire lot with a much bigger tire because that's where you get the most capability.
1: So from that perspective, the is a, a pretty interesting option.
0: I think
2: it'll be if an you, interesting. If option. you want really narrow handlebars. <laughs> but you can change that out. Or you get the not yeah. high-end one and it comes with yeah, less the next one down yes. it comes with normal yep. handlebars. Yeah,
3: Yep. And yep. the option for a suspension stem. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Just yep.
2: yep. Yeah. Like why would I don't understand why you buy this bike and put the suspension stem on it. When they offer a dedicated gravel bike with a suspension fork like i just
0: well uh, because that suspension suspension folks not (laughs) good and the suspension stem is way way lighter
2: yes yes i don't understand this but didn't we just say something about you being grumpy
1: mountain bike all
0: right well let's uh let's get away from all the bike (laughs) let's get away from all the bike tech news for a minute here uh and last bit of thing that i want to talk about before we move on to ask a mechanic quality bicycle products better known as qbp here in the u.s it's without a doubt, the the biggest distributor for bike stuff here in the US. Um, I don't know where they rank globally as far as uh, distributor size and stuff, but they're, they're massive. Um, but they just announced that uh, they've laid off 6% of their workforce or about 50 people. Uh, and they released a statement saying, quote, that this was a necessary step to address current market conditions and better position the company for future sustained growth a combination of external influences including the ongoing supply chain impacts from the COVID-19 pandemic coupled with an increase in transportation costs and a decline in consumer discretionary spending were key factors unquote so we've been talking a lot uh on recent episodes about how things really do seem to be slowing down from the from the COVID fueled boom uh and that's a big sign right there oh yeah um Zach, you use QBP a lot. Are you seeing yep. anything on your end?
2: Yeah, for sure. I would say, so I saw this article pop up where they laid off a bunch of people, but in the couple of weeks prior to that, I had noticed a few changes that they had made. Um, Mainly like quite a few products were on sale
0: mm-hmm. with
2: very large inventory numbers. Um, And then they've also lowered their like free shipping cutoff basically by a few hundred dollars, which for a small shop like me is kind of great, but also... Seems like they're trying to get people to purchase more orders, um, and then also prior. So they have, I think, four warehouses in the U.S. I was only able to get stuff from basically the like furthest west three, and they've now opened it up so I can get inventory from all four of the warehouses, um, which for me is great. But it's kind of indicative that there's issues there that they're trying to trying to get people to buy more things.
0: Like they're willing to eat the increased transportation costs to kind of clear out some seemingly excess inventory that they might have. Yeah,
2: which I think what has happened is like, I mean, this is my speculation from a very small bike shop that doesn't really purchase that much volume in the grand scheme of things. But like the last two years, inventory in general has been so hard to come by. So like anytime, whether like me and getting brake pads or chains or whatever, or like a distributor trying to get group sets or whatever the part may be, they like are they exist, so I'm going to buy as many of them as I possibly can because I know that I'll be able to sell them. And I think that that's been happening here too. Like You look at the products that are on sale, there's 50-plus in every warehouse. So it's like, okay, they bought all the things because they, they were selling immediately, and now the buying from the shops and the consumers is slowing down. So now they're sitting on way excess of inventory and trying to resolve that.
3: Yeah, we're going we're we're heading into a recession in that regard. There's gonna be a huge amount of stock bloat. Uh, there's already stores around here that are closing that have decided not to continue on another year. They've had a few great years, but the the challenges are ahead. I think it's, I think it is tough times ahead for the bike industry. I think the positive of it is that anyone that's been waiting for a new bike will be able to buy one on sale, uh, or cassette or chain near time. Yeah. But yeah, I think there, there will be struggles ahead for shops that have spent overspent on inventory thinking that this boom is going to last longer than it did.
2: The interesting thing that you just said, waiting on a chain and cassette and stuff like, so just using this as an example, because I know I, like, have seen the inventory of what's in stock right now, like XX1 access group set, like shifter, derailleur, battery, like that stuff, super overstocked on sale. But mm. let's say I got one of those, can't get a chain. Mm. I've had eagle, <laughs> eagle chains on back order from SRAM literally since last October, and they've still not shown up. Like, it's just all over the place. It's like someone in yeah. their demand planning did not do a very good job of. I don't know. You would think you would get a corresponding amount of chains for the group sets, but
3: I guess yeah. not. And to be fair, it's not, it's not just cycling, right? Like every industry no, totally still not. has that. Like I've I've been trying to buy a new battery for my my current, you know, like a Canon DSLR, like a mirrorless camera, like a, a brand new camera. You can't buy the battery. Um, so like it's just uh yeah, it's it's every industry seems to have these these small little hiccups in the in the supply while everything else is on sale. So it's it's yeah, still odd times, but I think it's a mess. Yeah, I think within the next twelve months we'll see things really return to the way they were pre-COVID, and at the same time, I think because stores have invested so much in stock that they thought was guaranteed money, um, yeah, I think unfortunately we'll see some struggling. I think the
2: most that's going to hurt is like the smaller, the smaller companies that are creating like innovative products. They're like, let's say we have this new little product that solves a problem. It's not very big. It's not very expensive. We're probably not going to sell very many of them. But it is cool, and it solves a problem for someone. They're going to go to, say, Quality, the distributor, so they can get a network to sell their product in. And yeah. w- let's say they're already like way over inventory levels that they want to have. Yeah, they're not going to buy that product from that yeah. Small, small. Yeah, they're vendor. not going to have the cash flow and then that, to take
3: on that product.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Then that hurts that vendor rather than yes, like. The distributor or whatever
3: yeah and it's a flow on effect right like all these online retailers um you know i've been hearing from a few different sources about various online retailers that have been canceling orders um that they'd previously forecasted for um just because they're seeing demand dry up and that that order was then you know there's a distributor somewhere that is now stuck with that stock or you know like that that stock has been created um and then they have to find a new channel to get rid of that stock so it's just i think there's a lot of things that are going to come with this and i think we'll probably see things like brands more incentivized to go consumer direct if they don't have other outlets to sell stock Uh, i think there's there's going to be some interesting uh yeah there's going to be some interesting industry changes from this as a result of what's probably going to be desperation
2: yeah and it's interesting too like i think it's going to hurt like let's say we're just talking about bike shops. Like it's going to hurt some of the bigger bike shops who are able to, to use their spending power to get however many hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of bikes and group sets or whatever to, in stock. And then yeah. there's someone who is like me who doesn't have that ability. So I like, am more on the I try and stock what I can, but like I'm definitely more on the just-in-time ordering thing. Mm-hmm. So now there's this over influx of inventory, and like that's great for a little shop like me, yeah. and I'm sure others. Like so it's it's just interesting how it affects different different size companies and whatnot.
0: Yeah. Well, as I've said multiple times before, we are definitely in very, uh, unpredictable and certainly maybe more interesting than it should be times. Um, but yes, it does really seem like we are about, we're in for a slowdown, uh, at least certainly in the bike industry if we haven't, like if, if it's not happening already. Um, and yeah, Zach, it'll be good for some people, not good for some other people. And
3: uh, yeah, we'll just continue to keep our eye out on this one, and see what happens. But, um, it's just, yeah, it's just so funny to me because it's like two years ago, Zach, you probably would have been complaining that the big shops were buying up all the stock and not allowing you to survive as a exactly as yeah. a small player. And it's like, you know, it's it's reset the other way. It's the big shops now can't afford to buy stock because they've bought too much of the stuff that's not selling. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. if only everyone just bought what they needed that they yeah. were going to sell
2: rather than Weird. stocking up. It's like the toilet paper thing. Like, oh, yeah. oh
3: god. <laughs>
2: anyway,
0: sorry. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, that will wrap up our news segment of the show. Let's uh let's move on to ask a mechanic, shall we?
3: Uh,
0: before we ask our first question, Dave, I believe you have a little bit of a, a correction that you want to issue, right?
3: Mhm yeah um I mean I wasn't here for the last group episode but uh but yeah I think it was mentioned that I'm a big fan of metal Shimano bleed funnels um and then you all said well that's crazy that's a that's a crazy Dave thing cuz we like it the translucent plastic funnels, and why would you want a metal funnel? Um, Wait, I don't, you weren't supposed to listen to the episode, Dave. Uh, I'm a fan. What can I say? Um, <laughs> I'm waiting for you to talk about an invention of a translucent metal <laughs> funnel. Yeah, there's a translucent. Me- I no, you just have a metal cup that has holes down the side of it. You have a slit down the <laughs> oh, side, yeah, right, of it and you can see <laughs> in. Um, no, I actually don't own a metal bleed funnel because I like to be able to see through, and I'm not tall enough to bleed. <laughs> a break with the bike in the stand and see over the top of the cup. So I have to have a cup that's translucent so I can see from the side of it. So um, yeah, mm, there you go. Fine. Okay, so D- Dave, we were mistaken. So mm-hmm. this was not a mistake that you made. This is a uh, this was an a, mista- a mistaken assumption that we made. Yeah. So and what what it told me is that none of you read Cool Tool Tuesday because I would literally <laughs> covered this. <laughs> but if you were taller, would you own a metal
0: funnel? Probably. <laughs> 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 okay, all right, well, i'll I'll take that. I'll take yep. that. All right, our first question, as always, these come from our Velo club members. So if you have not already signed for Velo Club, please do so, not just so that you can get in on the Ask and mechanic game, but also for all the other benefits that we've talked about in previous years. Uh, not the least of which is just supporting what we do here because if you haven't noticed yet, we do not run ads on nerd Alert, and that is by choice, not because people don't ask us. So anyway, First question comes from Bella Club member Edward Lynch. Uh, in a gravel race a few weekends ago, I had a rock kick up and chip the non-drive side arm of a SRAM force carbon crankset. What do I do? So uh, Edward did post a picture of this thing, and it did very much look like it's just a, a paint chip, not a, a, a damage in the carbon. Uh, what do we recommend here? Keep writing. Well, yes. But like I, my assumption is that he would like to cosmetically address the chip. I mean, get some
2: clear nail polish and, yeah like a
0: little clear nail polish I was thinking I
2: would also cool. not be that concerned about it like look at any person that has carbon cranks on their mountain bike and they're just covered in chips yeah
0: structurally I think
2: you're fine
1: wildly overbuilt hopefully yeah it,
0: it, it's it's obviously impossible to know 100% for sure just looking at a picture online but uh, my, my hunch is that you're probably fine but yeah cosmetically it would just be like a little bit of touch of paint or some clear nail polish something like that it shouldn't be too hard
3: and inspect so, Edward, it I once in a while
0: yeah I think you should be okay Uh, next question is a little bit more, uh, a little bit trickier. This one comes from Robert, Robert Nykop. Uh, Robert says his bottom bracket bearing is very gritty and almost seized on the non-drive side of his giant TCX. So he doesn't have time to change it before a cyclocross event in a few days. He's wondering if he should try to just get some grease in there or should he flush it first somehow? And then second question is what are some optimal bottom bracket bearings for cross uh, maybe some SKF solid oil ones, something balancing value, performance, and maintenance time. He would prefer to not pull them out after every race. He's a cat three, so he doesn't care about saving fractions of a watt. Uh, before everyone answers here, I do, I do want to clarify that he is running a 30 mil spindle Ooh. in that BB86 press fit shell, so that will severely limit options. Dave, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on this one?
3: Uh, It's a bad combination. It's, it is, it is That's a combination, uh, an oversized spindle that in a in a bottom bracket press fit system that was actually designed for shimano's 24 millimeter spindles so yeah it's it's a bad combination that you're always going to have a compromised size bearing in there um so yeah i would i would generally say spend more than you want to and get something from a reputable bottom bracket supplier like enduro would be my recommendation um but yeah zach where where where's your mind going on this one you actually service bikes for cross races yeah having worked a lot of cross racing and multiple cross seasons is traveling around and whatnot
2: Bottom brackets are something that you go through a lot of, um, particularly if you're a store, it's muddy and wet. Um, but I, like Dave said, this combination of bearings and bottom bracket, shell, and spindle. There's just not a lot of room in there. It's just not a good combo if you want the bearings to last at all. Um, I would say, I, mean, I guess, like, I don't know, like you either go to the disposable route and get the cheap, like, $40 bottom bracket, and you're just okay replacing it all of the time like I mean I've done this where you replace the bottom like you're putting new bottom brackets in after every weekend um but I think I've talked about it before not necessarily for saving watts but one of the the last couple seasons of cross that I did uh the rider I was with we had ceramic speed bottom brackets not at all for saving watts but that's just what the frames came with um and they the same bottom bracket bearings lasted two entire seasons what of like power washing, the bejesus out of many, many muddy races, like power washing the bike, it's still so muddy, you stick it in the case, travel to the airport immediately. Like very not
3: ideal maintenance for these bottom brackets and the same bearings lasted two seasons. And, wow. that's, so, and that's even more amazing when you consider ceramic speed actually use very light contact seals in their bottom brackets. Yeah. It's not incredibly well sealed. Very easy to service and the bearing quality is really good. Like I
2: mm-hmm. was, before that, I was very skeptical. and like, why would any non-professional cyclist buy ceramic bearings. Like it's just a waste of money, like to save three watts. Not that. But much. But <laughs> after that, yeah, not even three watts, right? Um, but after that, it's like, okay, from a durability standpoint, this also really makes a lot of sense because it like, I mean that just kind of proven to me like this $350 bottom bracket actually
0: lasts. Right. Mm. Because the whole the whole thinking Oh, well, I guess one big benefit purportedly of hybrid ceramic bottom brackets is because you have that the the ceramic bearing balls. They're so much harder than regular steel balls. And like, you know, people think of steel balls as being like really really hard and durable and everything. But the reality is, if you get a little piece of grit in there, it doesn't take much for those balls to pit. Um, whereas with a ceramic ball, because they're so hard, they basically just pulverize whatever's in there um and they're they actually are more likely to hold up than a steel ball and it's less less likely to have uh have issues with a little bit of grit that gets in there so i mean that seems like a pretty good testament to me because i actually had it in my notes for this answer to maybe consider a hybrid ceramic bottom bracket for that reason and well i guess that sounds like a good suggestion but, it,
2: but it's also like right you could have this 40 dollar like how many 40 dollar bottom brackets you're going to go through before you get to what the ceramic speed one costs right yeah. like it's It's like, what do you care about? Like, do you have the time and ability to change the bottom bracket out regularly when you need to? Or Or do you even want to? Like, do you want to deal with the hassle? Yeah, I mean, like, I guess now most things are electronic, but on a cross bike, like a lot of times, not just bottom brackets, but like you're replacing pulleys every weekend, you're replacing shift cables every weekend, you're replacing brake pads every weekend. Like, there's a lot to be done. And the bottom bracket is just one of those things that you just put in the routine of servicing or replacing. Right. So. All
0: right. So Robert, I guess that's our recommendation. Maybe consider a nicer hybrid ceramic bottom bracket but in there. I don't I'm trying to think I don't know if I don't know if ceramics makes one in that, one in size. that option because it's um, like en- a, enduro does. But I've like I've used that
2: that setup on a personal bike and like it works, but it not for long. Like I went through a bottom bracket super quickly in that. Because mm. it's not sealed very well because right. it's very exposed to the elements and then it's just such a small bearing. It's yeah. not not great. Yeah, right. That.
0: But given given the limitations of that, and um, Enduro does make a specific bearing for that combination. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- instead of having, you know, normally with a bottom with a press fit bottom bearing, you uh, sorry, normally with a press fit bottom bracket, you have a separate bearing that's pressed into a cup that's then pressed into the shell. Um, with those Enduro setups, the bearing is just pressed directly into the shell because it has a yeah. lip machined right into the it. outer race, yeah yeah, so essentially what they're able to do is they're get they're able to get a slightly larger bearing ball in there, um which at least in theory improves durability in, in an area that is notorious for not having very good durability for that combo. um so I think Enduro does make a hybrid ceramic in that yeah in that it's size x d
3: fifteen they make one. I'm looking so, at it I mean, now.
0: The, yeah. The xd 15 stuff is in my experience has been absolutely amazing. Like it's like stupidly
3: stupidly durable. Hands down the best bottom bracket we have ever tested, quoted by James Huang from Bike Radar. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, that was a long time ago. yeah,
0: but yeah well I mean I think I've mentioned does this before. Does that stand before. true I mean, to today?
1: When,
0: I think it still does because yeah. that bottom bracket that that uh that I wrote about I actually had a friend of mine, I think I've mentioned this before, but I actually had a friend of mine test that uh, for durability because he used to commute in to, into downtown Boulder every day, winter, spring, summer, whatever. It didn't matter what the conditions were. Uh, and he had a pretty sizable commute. He, always, he was a really strong rider, put out a lot of power. He's notorious for just destroying stuff. And I installed that bottom bracket in his bike. Um, it was a regular English threaded setup. Um, but I installed that bottom bracket in his bike. I intentionally removed the seals so those balls were completely exposed to the elements. And he ran that thing for a full year, had no issues with it whatsoever. And actually, his, that bottom bracket, he says, is still, he, he, st- he still has it. He still wants to use it. But the problem now is that the bike that it was attached to died. So he had to ditch the frame, but the bottom bracket is still fine. So, and that was, I mean, that, I wrote that review, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago or something like that.
3: That's awesome. So what what isn't pretty- awesome is in Australia that bottom bracket's four hundred and seventy dollars and it's Ooh. literally just a couple of bearings. Oh it's not worth it. Uh well
0: Get the uh, cheap one. Robert, I don't uh, think is anyway. in Australia. I'm pretty yeah, sure he's I would, in the- I'd also say too for cross,
2: like if you're doing doing muddy, muddy races or everything's really wet, like put as much grease as you can between the bearings and the seals and the dust seals and kind of everything just to create a bit of a water barrier. Like, it's going to get washed away, but it's
0: going to prevent some stuff from getting yep. in, at least, like, especially if you're power washing the bike. All right. Speaking of grease, uh, let's just bust out a couple more here because we're starting to go a little long. This one comes from Mark Lawrenson. Um, Mark needs some new general grease for just everyday bike use. says he has some Shimano premium grease, which he uses when he's cleaning and replacing crankset bearings, etc., He said he's about to change the fork in his mountain bike and will grease up the headset when he does that. Is that same grease fine, or should he find something else to use? Dave, what are your thoughts here?
3: Uh, Yes, that Shimano Premium grease is perfectly fine to use uh, wherever you please on the bike. Um, Yeah, I mean, realistically, any grease is fine for that application. You basically just want something that has... uh, good water resistance good washout resistance is what i would say so yeah a marine waterproof grease is great uh that shimano premium grease is actually pretty good as far as water resistance goes uh i believe it's very similar to the the motorex premium grease which is one of my go-tos um yeah it's it's to be honest you can't really go wrong there if you've got a a grease from a reputable brand um they're all going to be fine in that application yeah, I think so. I mean, for
0: for headsets, i like to use something that's definitely a little thicker and tackier, kind of like what you said, Dave, with the, with the marine grease, um, because that stuff tends to stay stay put a little bit better, uh, seems yep. to resist water a little bit better, I guess, which is why it's marine grease. Yep. Um, but up front in a headset application, like you're not concerned about friction really at all. So I would go with a thicker, tackier grease for sure absolutely
3: the the only thing i'd say and this is pretty rare but there are some greases not necessarily sold in the bike world but there are some greases that you'll get at hardware stores and stuff that have like dyes in them that i have seen stain paint over the time over time so um like you know in in, if left in a hot car for example where it can melt out a little bit and then the, the paint yeah, it can kind of react to the paint. So just, that's just something to keep in mind. But yeah, you're absolutely not going to have that issue with that Shimano Premium Grease and and realistically anything else from a from yeah, a, a well-known uh, automotive or petrochemical company will be fine. Gotcha. All right, well, Mark, that's our recommendation there. So it should be, should
0: be pretty easy to find. Um, let's do our last question here and then we'll wrap up. This one comes from Chris Cleland. Uh, do we know of a place that does a 46-tooth 130 mil BCD ramped and pinned chainring. Shimano used to do this, but it's been discontinued. Wickworks lists a set on their website, but he's not even sure if they're even still in business because they haven't responded to multiple attempts to communicate with them. Uh, this used to be a common size in cyclocross, and certainly that has gone away uh, with, the, I guess, the prevalence of one buy in cross. Um, Chris, I did a bunch of looking around for you on this one, and it's definitely very hard to find. Uh, I did actually find one from uh, sort of a house brand called Originate. Uh, I can't remember what distributor has that as a house brand. J&B. J&B. So yeah, it's pinned. Uh, It's just machined aluminum. It's fairly basic. It doesn't have super complex tooth profiles or anything, but it does exist. Uh, I found it on eBay. Um, But you're definitely going to want to look for, uh, I would say, probably eBay or maybe even potentially some like – sketchy Alibaba sort of thing because it's just not going to be a mainstream offering anymore.
2: I and mean, there used to be, I don't know if they still exist, there used to be a French company, uh, TA. TA, TA Specialties, that you could get all of these weird-sized chainrings in for cyclocross, and they usually had ramps and pins and worked really well. I would also say if he's running a 46 on a 130, a small ring is probably a 38 or a 39. Back when I was a young cyclocross racer, uh, I would run a 44-38 with no ramps or pins, because that's, I think they're maybe like Sugino chainrings or something. No ramps or pins, but it's such a small difference that as long as you have the front derailleur set up and it's like an actual quality front trailer, uh it shifts fine.
0: Yeah, because as it turns out, going from a 39 to a 46 isn't nearly as much of a demand as going from a 39 to a 53. Correct. <laughs> right. So, Chris, uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully you can find that listing that I found. I mean, I, I could probably send it to you on Slack, actually, uh, after we're done wrapping up with this. Um, but uh, But yeah, definitely lesser known brands but they are still out there but they are hard to come by so uh, you should still be able to get one of those
2: Um, I would say too because you mentioned the Shimano ones the older Ace ones that they used to make did not not have ramps and pins oh interesting yep
0: all right well we do have a whole bunch of other Ask a Mechanic questions left over here but I think we're going to have to save that for another day because we are we're well into the hour mark at this point so we're going to wrap this one up Uh, so that'll do it for this week's Nerd Alert podcast thanks as always for listening you got any questions or comments, please leave them in the comment section of the written post on cyclingtips.com for this episode. And if you haven't done so already, please leave us a review on iTunes. Five stars only, please. All right. So we will see you next week. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.